Uh, excited more to have it behind me, actually, than to actually <laughs> preach it. We're, we're moving into a heavy, heavy topic today, and uh, uh, we're going to be talking about God's eternal purposes. And so uh, I've titled this message, uh, God's Eternal Purposes, Part 1. I'm having trouble getting this to move, though. Well, we'll see. We'll go without it if we have to. God's Eternal Purposes, Part, is, part 1, Foreknowledge and Predestination. A couple of light topics for your Sunday morning. Uh, so we'll be looking mostly at Romans 8, uh, 29 this morning. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, when I decided to preach on Romans uh, a while back, uh, this was the sermon that I had in mind. Do I really want to preach Romans? Because someday I'm going to have to stand up here and preach this sermon. And especially as we got to uh, Romans chapter 8, I've been thinking about this sermon for like, I don't know, 12 weeks or so since we've been in Romans now. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean the sermon will be especially good, but it'll be especially hard because we're talking about hard topics this week. So uh, what we're going to do is uh, ask the Lord for help this morning, uh, and then we'll get into the Word. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you uh, for these amazing concepts of foreknowledge and predestination, Lord. And I pray that we see that it's all because of your love and grace. And Lord, that we would love you more and just be more in awe of you uh, when we're done today than before we came in. Lord, help us to uh, have uh, just hearts that, uh, even though we cannot comprehend everything uh, that your word teaches, Lord, help us to be able to hold these things in tension. Help us to give each other grace where we disagree. And Lord, uh, just help us to know that uh, we are all in your kingdom, regardless of how we see these things. And they don't need to be divisive issues. So we just pray these things, Lord, and pray that your, your hand will be on us this morning as we study these awesome concept of, concepts in Scripture. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, we've all been around uh, people before who know everything, right? Uh, we call them know-it-alls, people who know it all. Uh, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, they are the expert in that topic. Uh, there's a famous quote attributed to a man named Lord Melbourne, who was the uh, prime minister in England in the 1830s and 40s, uh, and he was talking about this man uh, named Thomas Macaulay, who would one day himself uh, be the Prime Minister of England. And he said about Thomas Macaulay, I wish I was as sure about anything as he is of everything. Uh, and so uh, Thomas Macaulay apparently had an opinion on everything and was not afraid to make that opinion known. Uh, I would never want to be called a know-it-all. Uh, know-it-alls have few friends because people generally tend to find them insufferable. They, they don't want to be around them. Uh, they're constantly critiquing and correcting uh, everything uh, you say. I remember uh, being around a certain know-it-all uh, many years ago. Uh, he, he was kind of on the outskirts of our friend group, and my friend Brian uh, said something. I don't remember what it was, uh, but then uh, this know-it-all was about to launch into a corrective sermon about what he uh, had said, and my friend Brian said, can we please just talk about something you don't know anything about? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that's uh, the kind of people know-it-alls are. And, and so we're coming to a difficult section in the book of Romans, and uh, this, this uh, section extends from here, Romans 8.29, all the way through uh, the end of chapter 11, and, and we'll be talking about the eternal 
purposes of God. And so uh, I would pray that none of us wants to be or thinks that we are know-it-alls when we're talking about the will of God, because it's impossible to know it all when we're talking about the will of God. We're going to be talking about hard theological topics like an election, uh, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification, evangelism. What about those who haven't heard? Is there a future for Israel? Uh, and these are doctrines on which Christians agree. And I emphasize Christians because these are theological questions among people who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're questions that people who have accepted the Lord Jesus as their Savior disagree about and have disagreed about for 20 centuries now. So the debate is not over essentials of the faith, like is there a God? Did Jesus live? Did he hang on a cross and die for our sins? Did he rise from the dead? Uh, none of the essentials of Christianity are at issue here. The debate is among Christian theologians about the hows and the whys and the whens uh, of election and salvation and redemption. And it's okay for brothers and sisters in Christ to disagree about the non-essentials. So Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, have uh, been disagreeing about how God elects, why God elects, uh, when God elects, who God elects, even if God elects. Like I said, for 2,000 years, they disagree on the meaning of foreknowledge, predestination, calling, uh, election, and all these other issues I mentioned. Now, Christians uh, tend to give themselves labels. They tend to want to put themselves in a camp. They might say, I'm a five-point Calvinist. I'm a four-point Calvinist. I'm a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist. I'm Reformed in my theology. I'm Arminian in my theology, or, or all different kinds of labels uh, that we put on ourselves. And uh, I'm of the mind that it's better to avoid labels uh, as much as possible because what happens is that labels tend to pit blood-bought Christians against each other. Like, I'm an Arminian, I'm a Calvinist, and now we're enemies because we don't have the same th system of theology. No, we are brothers and sisters in Christ who just see things a little bit differently. So as we approach these issues over the next few months, I just pray that we do so with great humility. It's okay to have our opinions, but also to hold them loosely and with grace, recognizing that someone can have an opposing viewpoint and still be a Christian. And I think that one of the sad things that happens in Christianity is that we look at other Christians who hold different views and we tend to look at them like they are heretics somehow. And so the things we'll be talking about, again, are not salvation issues. And that's not to say they're not important. They're very important. But it just means that we can be brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we disagree. Uh, we have to realize that there wouldn't be books called Five Views on Election, uh, Four Views on Predestination, if these views couldn't be biblically supported, right? So uh, I just pray that we approach these issues uh, in, in not, not with a divisive spirit, but with just awe and, and wonder and humility uh, with wisdom and knowledge about the grace of God. Remember Paul, who wrote this entire book, obviously, and after he was through talking about all these issues from 829 all the way through to the end of chapter 11, uh, here's what he had to say. This isn't working. Here we go. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now this is Paul speaking. So I pray that we can have the same attitude as Paul did. May we love each other more. May we be more astounded by the grace of, 
of God as we continue in Romans 8. May we all be teachable uh, and realizing that none of us knows it all yet. Uh, so with these things in mind, I hope you all have your scuba gear on. We're jumping in the deep end. Uh, here we go, talking about uh, foreknowledge and predestination. So Romans 8, 28 to 30. Uh, we're focusing on verse 29 today, uh, and we've uh, read the passage already. So let's just uh, remember that we talked about Romans 8, 28 last week. And we said from that verse that there are four things that we know. The things we know are that it is God who works, that it is God who works things together for good, all things together for good, because he is good. He works all things together for good for those who love God, and he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it's the to his purpose that is the link between verse 28 and verses 29 and 30. And verses 29 and 30 are an explanation of God's eternal purposes. And so Paul traced God's purposes in salvation, stretching from eternity past into eternity future, if you can talk about eternity in, in terms of time, in terms of past and future. We have to remember that God is outside of time, right? God is eternal. He's not bound of time uh, by time like we are. So to say it another way, uh, Paul described God's purposes in salvation from the moment that he conceived it in his mind until the moment that he will uh, bring it all to fulfillment and completion. And Paul set forth five stages of uh, this process of God's eternal plan. God foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. And I call them stages because to us, they happen in time. Because we live in time, these things are sequential to us. But again, God is not confined by time. And so uh, to him, they're not sequential. They're all true from the moment that God conceived of them. Uh, we experience them in time, but God conceives of them. And for God, they're all true all at once. And that's why Paul was able to write at the end of uh, verse 30, he says that we are glorified uh, even though we have not yet been glorified, right? It's past tense because it's as good as done uh, for God. So God's plan of salvation is that uh, he, God's plan of salvation that he made before the salvation of the, or the, the creation of the world, it cannot fail. And this should great, give us great assurance of our salvation it should give us just wonder about the, awe, about the majesty and awe of the wonder of God. So let's talk about this first stage. The first stage is that God foreknew us. Now, foreknowledge is a compound word in the Greek. It's made up of two words. So the first word is pro, which means before, and the second word is gnosko, which means to know. So put them together, and it's to know before, to know beforehand. Now, no one disagrees about the meaning of the word uh, prognosco. It means to know beforehand. That's not where the debate is. The controversy is, what did God know beforehand? Uh, and the controversy over this verse is important. It goes to the very heart of God's sovereignty and the issue of human free will. Now, I said that I don't like labels, but I'm going to talk about uh, two, uh, two uh, theological systems uh, that attempt to explain uh, how God's will and uh, God's will and God's foreknowledge and human free will work together. Uh, and so what happens is we have Calvinism on one side and Arminianism on the other side. And remember, these are both 
Christians. The, the, these groups are both re represent Christian theology, but Calvinism uh, emphasizes uh, God's sovereignty in the process of election and salvation, whereas Arminianism tends to stress uh, humans' free will and choice in salvation. So given those two systems, how is foreknowledge interpreted by Calvinists and Arminians? Uh, does it mean that God foreknew who would believe and then elected them uh, to salvation based on that knowledge. That's what someone who uh, holds to Arminian theology would say. They would say that foreknowledge mean that means that God looks down the corridor of time and he sees who is going to choose him, and so he elects them based on his knowledge of their decision. Uh, so then that's how an Arminian would look at it. Someone with a more Calvinistic uh, bent would say, uh, would, would use uh, God's sovereignty in salvation and say, a, a Calvinist says that uh, foreknowledge actually has nothing to do with our choice. Foreknowledge is God's choice of us before we ever even existed. So we do not choose God. Uh, we choose God, but we only choose God because he chose us first. He foreknew us and he chose us. So we would not choose God uh, unless he first chose us. So uh, how do we resolve this? Uh, this is uh, most certainly a, a difficult problem, uh, but the Bible talks about two kinds of knowledge. Uh, there is God's general knowledge of facts and circumstances, and there's also a special love that God has for his own people. And when used in that second sense, when the object of God's knowledge is his, is his knowledge of people, uh, that word to know is often synonymous with the word to love. And so here are a couple of examples. In Jeremiah 145, uh, God said, I chose you, which is from the Hebrew word yada, which means to know. I chose you, I knew you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So that's an Old Testament example. Uh, in the New Testament, I am the good shepherd. I know, gnosko, I know my own sheep and they know me. And here's a couple other examples. There are countless examples in the Bible of this. I just picked a few uh, examples so that we could see. Uh, but to, to know uh, God uh, and for God to know us means for God uh, to love us. Uh, you know the song, right? To know, know, know him is to love, love, love him. It's the same idea. Uh, to know is to love. God is loving us uh, before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world. He knows us. It means that he loves us. So that's the word to know. So the word foreknowledge now, as we transition from knowledge to foreknowledge, it most often refers to not God's general knowledge of future events, but God's decision to love certain people in advance. First uh, Peter 1.20, for he was foreknown, that's Jesus he's talking about, before the foundation of the world. Uh, speaking of the Jews in Romans 11, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So theologians point out that uh, God must have issued a divine decree in, in advance before he could know something would happen. Unless God determines in some sense that something will happen, he can't know that it's going to happen. And so uh, we see other examples of that in Acts 2.23 and, and 1 Peter chapter 1 and, and several other places in the Bible. So that's what foreknowledge means. Foreknowledge means that he loved us beforehand, meaning before we existed. And it means that God knew and decreed in advance who would believe 
and be saved. And so uh, foreknowledge means that God has chosen a special and personal relationship of knowing and choosing his elect. And it's the relationship in the word foreknowledge that is stressed here. So it's not that God knows about us or that God knows what we will do. It's that God knows us. He has a relationship with us. Uh, and it's based on his foreknowledge, his choice to love us before we even existed. Now, if we take the position that God just looked down the corridors of time and elected those who would choose him, that kind of neglects human depravity, doesn't it? This whole doctrine of total depravity. Because Adam sinned, uh, his sin nature was transmitted to each and every one of us. And now we all have a natural bias against God. So none of us would ever choose God if we were left to our own devices. Uh, Psalm 14 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And you'll recognize that verse, of course, from months ago when we studied Romans chapter 3. Paul quoted that verse uh, talking about how we all deserve uh, God's condemnation, but because we believe, we get his grace. Uh, so we see that there in that verse. Also in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, it says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So uh, what do we see here? We see that the only ones who will believe are those who are moved by the Holy Spirit to believe, because we are all predisposed to sin, and none of us will choose him of our own free will, and only the working of the Spirit will cause this to happen. And I know that's true in my own life, and many of you will testify the same. Uh, there's no way in my own will, in my own power, in my own desire, I ever would have come to Christ. I had no interest in such a thing. It was only because God drew me uh, and called me uh, that I believe. And so uh, the ones who choose God are the ones that God foreknew. Uh, one more argument that we would make in favor of this view of foreknowledge is that uh, if God looked down the corridors of time and knew who was going to choose him, and then he elected them based on that, uh, that would mean that salvation would be dependent on man. And that would mean that God would get, or man would get the credit for salvation. And faith would be a work that we could take credit for and not a gift from God. But we know from Ephesians 2 that that's not, not true because verse, uh, Ephesians 2 says this, by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. So we can't boast about it. It's God's gift to us. And yet, I still believe, and the Bible clearly teaches, that all people, all people have a choice. Jesus would not have told his apostles to go preach the gospel to the whole world if the gospel were not genuinely offered to all people. But we still have to choose. So what do we do with this? It's a mystery. Uh, God's foreknowledge and our choice can't be reconciled. The elect choose to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And our salvation is secured by faith. We, we appropriate God's salvation by our faith. So at the same time, though, it's still more about God's choice of us than our choice of him. Even the faith that we have is a gift from God. We would never have chosen him if he didn't first move to us so that we would make that choice. So God foreknew us. God elected us. He drew us and he saved us. He loved us from all eternity. He determined before we were born, knowing all of our sin, to love us and to save us anyway. So the first link in the chain 
is that God foreknew us. The second link in the chain is that God predestined us. The word predestined means to set in advance what the final outcome will be, to decide beforehand. This word is used in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. And you can see another example in Acts chapter 4 as well. Uh, so the controversy. Uh, many people don't like the idea of predestination, right? It seems fatalistic. It seems deterministic. It seems unfair to those who are not elect. It seems to impede or infringe upon our will. But if you believe in the Bible, you have to believe in predestination. It's a biblical concept. So the controversy is really not about whether predestination is biblical and, and true. It's what do we mean by predestination? Well, again, Arminianism and Calvinism have two different approaches to this. Uh, Arminianism says that God predestines according to the foreknowledge that he has of our future free will decisions. So again, uh, Arminianism is stressing uh, human will and human choice in man's salvation. A Calvinist would say just the opposite. Predestination is not based on the foreknowledge that God has of our choices. It's based on God's will before we, were ever, before we ever existed. So first, God foreknew certain individuals uh, in the sense that he loved them beforehand. And then having loved them, he predestined them to believe. And so God's sovereignty is stressed. So in the context of our passage, uh, Romans 8, 28 and 29, uh, God predestined. It means that predestination is that God determined in advance what will happen to us. So in 8, 28, we see that God works all things together uh, to the, for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29, uh, the good that God has predestined for us is that we will be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Uh, so what we see there is the outworking of the good that God promises to us in Romans 8.28. Now, one controversy, of course, about uh, this, this predestination is, is this topic of God's special love. Doesn't God love everyone equally? Doesn't God want all people to be saved and come to repentance? Uh, if God wants all people to be saved and come to repentance, then why isn't everyone saved? Well, we do know that God loves everyone, right? Uh, John 3:16, God so loved the world. But at the same time, he had a special love for his people. Obviously, he has a special love for Israel over and above the other nations. That's the only explanation for why Israel continues to exist when it's been uh, attempted to be destroyed by its enemies over and over again for the last 4,000 years, and yet it still exists. And this love also applies to individuals. We saw that in Jeremiah 1.5. We also saw that in John 14 that we looked at earlier. And we'll see it again when we get into Romans chapter 9, uh, where Paul says, uh, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, brothers and sisters, this is a difficult thing. Uh, this is just part of the mystery of God. Uh, and that's why uh, predestination is so difficult. Theologians have been arguing about it for 2,000 years. Uh, people seem to be repulsed by this idea of predestination, some people anyway. 
uh, pastors don't like to preach about it because it's such a hard topic. It seems either contradictory or circular or unresolvable. Uh, if God has, or if God predestined us and salvation is because of God's choosing, then we really don't have free will and we don't like that. If God wants everyone to be saved and not everyone will be saved, is God really sovereign? Uh, if God predestines and only those who predestined or are predestined can believe, then how can a just and loving God send people to hell when he's not predestined them to believe? Brothers and sisters, we have waded into the deep, deep waters here. Uh, this is the mystery of God. If there were clear answers to these questions, we wouldn't be debating these things for the past 2,000 years. Uh, I think I've kind of tipped my hand that I lead, lean more toward the Calvinistic views uh, here of God's role in salvation, but I also stress that God is sovereign and there is mystery here and, and we have to learn to get comfortable in the tension between God's sovereignty and our free will. Uh, God is sovereign and yet we are responsible to believe. So predestination should not be a repugnant concept to us. Remember, uh, Ephesians 1.5 that I read earlier, in love, we miss that often, don't we? In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Do you see it? Uh, this is about God's love. Uh, Ephesians 1.5 is, is about the outpouring of God's love, even though we can't fully understand it. So let's just take a moment to uh, take a breath, first of all, and then let's think for a minute about some of these objections to uh, this concept of predestination as I've presented it. Uh, so the first objection that I would uh, raise that's a common objection is, is predestination unfair? And I would say to that, no, predestination is not unfair. God is just and God's justice demands that every single person be sent to hell for their sins. And it would be fair if God decided not to save anyone. The fact that he saves anyone at all is a testimony uh, to his grace and his mercy. Uh, and so he's not required to save anyone. But we think that if he saves anyone, well, then he's required to save everyone. And that just imposes our uh, sense of human justice on God. Uh, and Paul uh, anticipated this objection in, in Romans chapter 9 uh, when, when, he said, uh, when he said, is God unjust? And, and Paul's answer is, uh, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Uh, Paul understood the tension. He was comfortable in the tension. And Paul understood that God is God and we are not God. And, and we don't have a right to tell the potter what to do with his clay. We may not like it necessarily, but we're not in God's place. So predestination is not unfair. Uh, if God wants everyone to be saved, why aren't they? Look at these two verses, 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9, God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So don't these passages show that God wants all people to be saved? If so, then how can God predestine some and not others? Well, the answer has to be that there are two wills of God. God does will that everyone be saved, but the fact that all people are not saved shows that there must be another will of God that is stronger than the will of God that all be saved. Now, some theologians call these two wills of God uh, his revealed will and his hidden will, or they might call, him his, uh, call the wills his universal will and his particular will 
or his will of desire and his will of decree. Uh, we see this, uh, an example of this in the Ten Commandments. We know that the Ten Commandments say, thou shall not murder, right? So God doesn't like murder. That's his will of desire. Yet, God ordained his son to be killed at the hands of sinful men to achieve the purpose of salvation. So his will of decree was stronger than his will of desire that we not murder. And so we have to recognize that, that there must be two wills of God and one is stronger than the other. For the Calvinist, uh, the, the, the stronger will of God uh, is that God's desire is to preserve his own glory, which would somehow uh, be diminished if all are saved. Now, for the Arminian, on the other hand, they also recognize that there must be two wills of God, but they say for the Arminian uh, that the, the uh, overarching, the, the, the stronger will of God is to preserve man's free will, which would somehow be impeded if God predestined our choice, because then our choice would be coerced and it would not be free. But either way, and no matter whether you look at this from a Calvinistic perspective or an Arminian perspective, the fact is that God's will that all men be saved bows to his will that all men will not be saved. And so uh, if God wants everyone to be saved, why aren't they? It's because God has a stronger will than the will that all be saved, and it's to preserve his glory. So. Uh, that's a difficult objection. Here's another difficult objection. Uh, why are we held responsible if we are not predestined? Well, the Bible repeatedly affirms uh, that we are responsible for our choice if we refuse Jesus. Uh, Matthew 23, 37, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were unwilling. Do you see that? That you were unwilling. Uh, and what we see there is, is the responsibility aspect of it, the human will aspect of it. The Bible always presents humans with freedom of choice in this regard and responsibility for our choice. And at the same time, in a mystery that we can't explain, we have sovereign election on the one hand and human responsibility on the other hand, both clearly taught in scripture and both true. So we are held responsible because Jesus says that we're held responsible uh, for our choice. Doesn't predestination to save some mean predestination to condemn others to hell? Wow, that's a tough one. This is a doctrine that is called reprobation or sometimes double predestination or other times uh, it's called hyper-Calvinism. Well, uh, this is a hard one for sure. Uh, the, the, the Bible, though, never actually speaks of double predestination in the sense of uh, God electing or predestining some to hell and others to heaven. God does actively predestine some to heaven, but the Bible doesn't teach predestination to hell necessarily. God offers salvation to all, uh, and those who believe are the predestined and the elect. Now, predestination to hell is, is a concept, it's a theological idea because it is a logical conclusion or a deduction that theologians have drawn from the scriptures. If he elects some, then he must not elect others and then therefore predestine them to hell. Uh, but that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches active predestination to heaven and a passing over of those, uh, not a predestination of those to hell. Uh, so that's a difficult teaching, but the Bible teaches that uh, people are not predestined to hell, but they're under God's wrath because they have refused the salvation 
that they have been offered. John 3.18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So that's the, the answer to the question. And finally, doesn't predestination infringe on free will? Well, it depends on what we mean by free will. It depends on our view of free will. Every decision we make is affected by outside influences. Ephesians chapter 2 that we looked at earlier tells us that we are dead in our sins. Unless God draws us to him, we have no ability to choose him. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So in that sense, our will isn't free anyway. Our will to choose is affected by the work of the Holy Spirit. God has to do the first work if we are to believe. And yet we are still responsible to believe what God has revealed to us. John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, to those he gave the right to become children of God. John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have eternal life. Romans 10:9. if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we're called to believe. We are responsible to believe. From God's perspective, the choice was made in eternity past, uh, long before we ever existed. Uh, and the gospel has been offered to us, though, and our choice, even though it was determined in eternity past, to us, the choice is 100% real and free according to the revelation that we have received and the desires of our hearts. How y'all doing out there? <laughs> heavy, heavy stuff, right? Uh, well, we've talked a lot about theology today. My head has been spinning all week, so I thought it would be only fair that I do the same to you. Uh, I'm sure your head is spinning too. So let's ask ourselves, you know, we're spending all this time talking about this. If, we, if there's no answer, if it's irreconcilable, if God's will and our, uh, our if, if God's predestination and our will, uh, if we can't reconcile those things, what's the point of all this? Well, Paul doesn't leave us uh, ignorant in that regard. He tells us what the point of this is in predestination as we look again at Romans 8, 28 and 29. The first purpose that he articulates in verse 29 is that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So God's purpose in predestination is eternal. Since before the foundation of the world, God chose us so that while on earth we would believe in him and then resemble him increasingly day by day through the process of sanctification. And that process will not be complete in our lifetimes. That process will not be complete until we are glorified, the last link in the chain, and then we will be like him in heaven with glorified bodies and our sin natures eradicated for all eternity. So that's God's first purpose in predestination. God's second purpose in predestination is also in verse 29, so that he, that's Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now we've been adopted into God's family. Jesus is the firstborn and we are his brothers and sisters in God's family. If you come from a big family, you know that it's fun to have all your brothers and sisters around you, right? And, and so uh, Jesus will have his brothers and sisters in Christ around him. We are his church. We are those who Christ bought with his blood. We are his reward. We are the joy that was set before him uh, that he chose us uh, and uh, decided to endure 
the cross and scorning its shame. We're the joy, the reason why he did that, uh, to purchase our salvation. And so his reward is to receive glory from God and from those who have received salvation. So God has a purpose in predestination. He predestines in love, as we saw from Ephesians chapter 1. So predestination is not bad. Predestination is a beautiful expression of God's love that secures the salvation of his elect. All right, let's talk about some applications. I know this is heady stuff, but you know, if, if you're a believer, you don't have to worry about these things. You don't have to worry about which side of the aisle you fall on uh, because we don't have to worry about if we are elect or not. I hope you've been challenged today and I hope you've had to think deeply about some things. A deep theology though can make our heads hurt. Uh, I just don't want you to worry about whether you are predestined, uh, whether God has predestined you to salvation. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you are foreknown, you are predestined, you are called, justified, and glorified. You are among God's elect. It is a done deal. And as we'll talk about in more detail next week, you cannot lose your salvation. It's been secure since the moment God foreknew you before the creation of the world. So don't worry about if you're elect or not. If you believe, you are elect. Number two, don't think predestination eliminates the need for evangelism. Remember that it's Paul who wrote Romans, right? The greatest evangelist who ever lived, who traveled all over the world, enduring all kinds of beatings and sufferings to spread the word of the gospel. Uh, Paul accepted God's predestination and election on the one hand, and the need to evangelize and the people's need to receive Christ on the other hand. Uh, you and I don't know who is elect and who isn't. Uh, so how do we decide or how do we say, uh, I'm not going to preach to that person. He's not elect. We don't have the power or the ability to say that. We don't know who is elect. Uh, and if we think that if God is going to reach the elect anyway and he doesn't need us, well, that's not the right attitude either. That's true. He doesn't need us. But what a privilege it is that he uses us in his plan of salvation before the beginning of time that he chose to use us uh, to help uh, preach the gospel. He allows us to be part of it. And how awesome will it be if someone in heaven comes up to us and says, thank you for loving me enough to share the gospel with me so that I might be here with you. And so when we think about the role of prayer and God's role in salvation uh, and why bother to evangelize, we should pray like it all depends on God, but preach the word like it all depends on us. That's what Paul did. And finally, don't let predestination make us arrogant or complacent. Remember that God did not choose us because there is anything in us uh, that makes us worthy. And I think we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to be proud uh, when we consider ourselves as, God ele as God's elect. Uh, God has foreknown us and predestined us because of his love for us, not because there's anything special in us. Uh, and we tend to think, well, there must be something in me that makes me better than the guy next door, right? That's not true. We, there is nothing in us. We were dead in our sins. If we think that, it's because we have misunderstood grace. Grace is God's gift that is completely undeserved. And if we deserve it for any reason, it's no longer grace. It's something that we have earned. So let's not let predestination make us arrogant but let's also not let it make us complacent. We may think if we're elect and there's nothing we can do to lose our salvation, well, let's just go crazy. Let's live however we want to live, live a life full of sin. 
Uh, but that's not the right attitude either, right? If we think that we have our get out of jail free card and we can just go live however we want, then we haven't understood what our election cost God, that Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins to purchase our salvation. So let's not be arrogant or complacent. Okay, I started this sermon by talking about know-it-alls. And one thing I know is that I don't know it all. Uh, and I may not be right, and I probably am not right about some of the things that I have said here today. Uh, how God's sovereignty and how human will works together has perplexed the greatest minds that have ever existed for 2,000 years, and my mind is not included among those minds. So uh, what's important uh, is really not so much that we understand how the mystery of God's sovereignty and human will works together, but that it has worked together for us to achieve our salvation. God is sovereign, but we still have to choose. So have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior? If you have, the rest of this is academic discussion. But if you haven't, I plead with you to do it right now, and then you'll know that you are too one of God's elect. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for this concept of predestination and foreknowledge, Lord, and we can't fully understand it. We do the best we can with our finite minds to try to wrap our minds around the concept that, that you are sovereign, and yet, uh, to some degree, we, we have a will, Lord. And uh, no one's been able to fully reconcile that, Lord. Let us not dwell on these things. Let us discuss these things. Uh, but, Lord, let us not divide over these things. I pray that this morning has been a thought-provoking, Lord, but I pray that it has not been divisive. Lord, uh, your word does not return void, and I pray that it will accomplish its purposes. I pray these things in Christ's matchless name. Amen.